This is Women Who Build Empires, a podcast celebrating women entrepreneurs and thought leaders who are turning the tables on outdated old school belief systems and building business empires that align with who they are, how they work, and how they are leaving a lasting legacy. And I'm your host, Emmy Kirshner, serial entrepreneur, investor, and business consultant for ambitious women entrepreneurs who are boldly taking their business to the next level. In each episode, you're gonna get to know the women who are unafraid to put it all on the line as they share the stories of how both success and failure have helped them become incredible CEOs. Hey, Empresses. On today's show, I have Desrock. She is the CEO of Seamonster, a global IT firm. And we have a really cool conversation It spans the depth and breadth of her moving from Turkey to Australia and the relationship she had with her mom and her family and how that's really impacted her thought leadership. We talked about why raising her kids as a stay-at-home mom was the beginning of her starting her legacy. We also talked about how she moves through fear and why she sees fear just as a limiting place to essentially move through, bust through. And we also, of course, talked about what she's doing um, with Seamonster and what it's like to be a woman in IT. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. As I want to welcome you to the podcast We've been chatting for, I don't know, 10 minutes, almost 15 minutes, and I finally hit record because otherwise we were going to have a whole podcast and not have it recorded. So one, as I said, welcome, but two, we were just talking about measuring success and how we measure success Mm. through money. And for you, um, success is more than just that. So let's back into that conversation and we'll expand from there. First of all, Amy, I want to say how much I was looking forward to being on this particular podcast because of the title and the audience and who we're capturing here. So what I was saying while we were chatting was uh, there's a lot of people who measure success by their career and the work they do because what we're ultimately doing is measuring it by financial gain and money. And I tend to not do that. And And I gave you that story because I, my story when I was building my empire I had to rebuild what I lost first, and that for me was family. I had been ousted from my family, kicked out of my family, and uh, I, the, and it was such a hole in my heart that I had to fill that first, and I did before I could then move on to any other part. So that is a very quantifiable part of my building my empire journey, but also part of my success as well, right? So, and I measure that as my success as well, because it's not just my financial gains. That's what I was trying to say, um, you know, on how we measure this, because there's no point me being financially successful and on the top of my game, but yet miserable, right? Right, right. Well, and at the end of the day, money's lovely. And it it does buy a lot of choice and options, but if you don't have anybody to share it with, Right. Like why, for me at least, like that's the point of having the choice is being able to have people in your life, your family, and be able to impact them positively. So I'm going to harp back on your title of your of your podcast. You talk about and you talk about building empires, and I think 
when I thought about this, I thought, who's the, what is the empire? Is the empire the business you're building or is the empire the legacy you're leaving, right? right. So, um, and for me, it, it's the legacy I'm leaving and it's to whom I'm leaving it to. Mm-hmm. And I have four children and my empire is for them. Yeah. Yeah. And same for me. I have two kids, single mom. And for a long time, I didn't recognize my success as a single mom and how I've brought them up and and really helped foster and guide them into being very caring, empathetic human beings who are grounded and focused Mm. on what they want to do. And it is, it's about leaving the legacy for me as well. So that's part of why I love playing with the empire because it's not just the business. It's, it could be any number of things, but what are you leaving behind? Right. And no one can judge our character better than our children, by the way. Like when you're give when they're giving our eulogy. Yeah. They're either going to stand up and lie. Right. Right. Or they're going to tell it as it is. And I want to live my life in a fashion where they never have to lie. Right. Yeah. Mine will have some epic tale to share. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do want to back up a little bit though. And let's talk about, you know, your childhood and because you've had a very interesting life and you've lived in a lot of different places. Correct. So kind so of my English. Yeah, that's right. My English is coming to you with an Australian accent. Although I was not born in Australia, I was actually born in Turkey on the coast of the Black Sea. I am by ethnicity Caucasian because I come from the Caucasus mountain region, right? Mm-hmm. So um, although in America we use it interchangeably for white, that's actually the term Caucasian actually means a region, a geographical region. So mm-hmm. I'm actually from there. Now, so we immigrated to Australia when I was a baby and so I was raised there. So my story definitely starts with being an immigrant family, first generation, and the uh, trials and tribulations that that put on me and that certainly made impacts on me as well. As I touched on before, I had uh, family issues, so the very family that brought me over. But I, by the way, I lost my parents very quite quite early. Like I lost my mother when I, when I was 24 wow. and, yeah, and my father died also when I was younger too. So I was orphaned as an adult, <laughs> I guess, quite young on, so I had to be on my feet. My family, my, when I say my family, my um, siblings, uh, ousted me completely out of the family for who I married. That was devastating because we were a nuclear family, an immigrant nuclear family in a country where uh, it was just us. You know, I had, by the way, I have like 76 first cousins. Wow. But, right. So I have a large, ex- large, extensive family. Exactly. But in Australia, it was just a very nuclear family so to even lose those to lose that was absolutely devastating for me and very much part of the story my origin story all of that the immigration what it was like growing up as an immigrant what it was like um losing that only family that you had all galvanized me to the woman i am today yeah i can only imagine particularly losing your parents at that age like Mm. that's it's hard regardless of age but to be in that like a young adult phase of your life and to lose people that have been guiding you and mentoring and raising you right as you're kind of taking off, I can't. Yes. Just when I needed her, she, yeah, she left. Yeah. Yeah. And why, why move from Turkey to Australia? 
that's, you know, it was only when I recently went back because I went back to Turkey to reclaim my cultural identity, which I had hidden. That's another part there. I had hidden quite successfully to my own demise mm-hmm. um, and only started to flourish once I incorporated all of that back and put my soul back together and said, no, 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 Every what I thought was a weakness turns out to be my absolute strength, right, which is always the way, right, like what you, you know, you, the differences the differences in your life, the parts of your life where you think, well, no one really, that's not, because we measure it against everybody else and we certainly measure it in the Western world with a certain standard. So I did my absolute best to meet that Western standard to my best ability and then realised it was actually all of my differences, every single part of my differences that made me unique, that made me who I was, that allowed me to think outside Uh, the box. So what made me, what moved our family was my mother. I actually thought for a long time it was my dad, but it was actually my mother who gave birth to a daughter after several sons and said no. (laughs) So at her age with four children, not knowing the language moved and I cannot fathom the courage it took to do that. It wasn't for, this wasn't a refugee situation. It wasn't anything else other than a future. She was thinking of the future of her children yeah and what did she want to be able to give you an Australia that couldn't be found in Turkey ostensibly well I think she left because she was a woman in a in a patriarchal society in a very small you know in a town where we were right. and she had some very overbearing in-laws as well from what I've learned now and she was a very strong formidable woman we generally look women from the Black Sea region generally are very strong formidable women <laughs> that's uh that's a very known fact so uh she obviously wanted to swim in bigger waters right uh without the baggage of societal mm-hmm. expectations on her mm-hmm. and in doing so she gave me that ultimate gift that I could do the same yeah which is really cool. Yeah. It takes a lot to me, a lot of intentionality and forethought of one, I think for herself, like I want to be able to ex- experience something different, but I also, I want to be able to give my kids and my daughter this gift. It and- was only after she died that I actually found a letter from her. I wish my mother had spoken to me in the way she, which, which she wrote in the letter. She wrote this passionate letter to me, to her daughter with all of her intentions and it was so deeply moving and it outlined everything, all her desires and her wishes for me. Yeah, so that's when I really, really understood the sacrifice she had done. Yeah, that's incredible. I want to fast forward a little bit too because before we hit record and we were starting to talk about leaving a legacy, you had said for you having been kind of kicked out of your original family. Yeah. Uh, rebuilding and, and starting a family had to come first for you before you could yes. start. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Why is that? And and just share kind of your progression um, and, and what's happened for you. I think innately I am very family. I, I am duty bound and very family orientated. I take my role and my responsibility incredibly seriously. And so my duty in my within my community and within my um, within my family as well. And I've always been ready to, you know, present. But I was, like I said, I'd lost everything. So I was on my own and rudderless, you know, out at sea, lost. I had to, The it was instinctual. It was instinctual to want to build 
what I had lost. That's a very instinctual thing, right? And women, we are creators. If nothing else, we can create from nothing, right? right. We can create families from nothing. We can create, like, that is the magic of women, right? We can do this, right? Yeah. So the very first thing I did was exactly that. I, I needed to feel, there was a hole that I couldn't, uh, I want to say I couldn't breathe, but like there, there was no purpose without what was ostensibly so important to me. So mm-hmm. that became my sole purpose throughout my 30s, you know, my late 20s was to build family. I st- I'm going to tell you right now, I stayed at home and raised those babies. I'm, I, you know, I looked after them. I ensured that they had the childhood and the love and uh, poured made sure that their buckets were full, right, and spent the time and effort that it took to do that. I wanted to build very, very strong foundations into those relationships, Um, and I took care of that business before I could even think about anything else. Hmm. Which is amazing, and you're, you're so right. Like women can create community and bring other people together and create families, even if it's not blood related, I think very easily. Like we're seeking yes. support other people and be supported um, and give people a safe place to land. So at what point for you, after having your kids, pouring everything into them, mm-hmm. being a stay-at-home mom, did you decide to shift out of that role a little bit? And so you're, I want to absolutely make that clear. I was a stay-at-home mum. I did not raise children or give birth to children for other people to look after them. That was very kind of like there were certain things that I am very, very solid on and that was one of them, right? So right. I didn't want to do that. However, at the same time, I never stayed stagnant as well. So I started uh, doing all sorts of things. I ran a philosophy club. You know, I studied philosophy while I was pregnant with, uh, you know, throughout all of that. I studied, I started university. I started a degree. I finished my degree. I got into law. You know, there was always this background thing always going on as well, as well, by the way. So can you imagine I was a full-time uni student with three children and then fell pregnant with the fourth one and still finished my degree. So that's personal. When I look back now, I'm amazed I did that. I used to put my babies to bed and then study until one in the morning, you know, and I'm amazed I did that, especially being later diagnosed with ADHD and knowing that it's so difficult for us to finish any task. (laughs) So, but I did it. I did it. And I think that there is something that's, look, there's always been a destiny that I knew I was to fulfill. Like I've been stepping my path every part of the way. And when I look back and I think, yeah, that was all part of it. I knew that that would happen. That would all click into place. So there was groundwork being done that led me to here. I wasn't just like, hey, I was a stay-at-home mom with four kids and all of a sudden, bang, CEO. That's not what happened, right? right. So well, there, there was always a journey. but And the journey was difficult. It's always difficult. It's much easier to watch TV at the end of the day, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I found the courage and to stand in my conviction, right, and to walk my path. And I never swayed from that. So even though I knew I was fulfilling the important part that I needed to fulfill, I knew also my destiny was bigger than just this. It wasn't just this that had to be there. You know, that I, I was going to make an impact that was going to be bigger than this, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what I'm hearing too and what's really landing for me is, you poured into your kids, you gave them everything, created 
amazing worlds for them. And not that they are without challenges because everybody has oh, yes. in their lives, but that you also are really clear about nurturing yourself. Yes. Oh, yes. There was a lot of uh, generational trauma and uh, what to undo as well, uh, that my mother was not fortunate enough to be in a place or had the privilege enough to do so that land that that both opportunity and responsibility landed on my shoulders that was also so that also happened too I was adamant at not passing that on this the generational trauma stopped with me right yeah yeah was there particular work you had to do to let that go or or was it more the okay Yes, definitely. Definitely. There was a lot of internal. You don't get to this this whole heightened philosophical stage without doing the hard work. <laughs> Come on, anyone, anyone who knows, knows, right? Yeah. Um, so absolutely, absolutely. The woman you're seeing now, you know, the calm in, was not the girl at 21. My goodness, she was a mess. Yes. Yeah. Well, and for me, with my kids, there were certain things that I with patterns I was aware of generationally that I'm like, I will not allow this to go any further. Mm-hmm. I made that hard, fast decision and then, then grew into, into making that change so that my kids are better off than I was yes. um, from a, an emotional stable. So I have, you know, we talked about, you know, the things that were resonating with your audience and, you know, there was the emotional stuff that I have been, I will highlight, not necessarily going into detail, but I have been, Abused in any way, every way a person can be abused. So list them in your mind yeah. and then tick them off, right? Okay. So, and I thought, and by the way, I worked through all of those and undid all of those knots. However, what was the most debilitating part that took me the longest to undo that I didn't realize was even there, that's how deeply it was buried, was my identity. And by identity, I mean what I touched on before, my cultural identity, you know, what I was hiding, right? So I was in, I changed my name to fit in. I changed everything about me to fit in and so buried my ancestors. Wow. And then, right? And so had to undo all of that. I remember when I was in a a therapy session and I was there for different type of, for uh, abuse counselling, right, so that I'd gone through and she completely ignored that part because I could easily speak about that. I can speak about that part until the day, you know, the cows come home, right? But I couldn't tell her my actual name. And that's right. when we knew where, where my issue really was. So when we unpacked that and then finally realised that, okay, so this is, you know, this is who I am and pieced myself back together again and, and then came out. And by the way, all of this, and it was shrouded in shame. Shame was what was keeping me where I was. And it wasn't the shame of a woman. It was the shame of a little girl who'd been taught very, very early on, right, who had never unpacked that. So all of this had been packed away in my mind and was a disruptor and I if you had have asked me in my 30s and in all in my 40s was that what is the one thing that's you know you need to work I wouldn't have even been able to name it right right I had to undo and I think this is the other part I had to undo all of the other distractions in order to get to the core yeah yeah but once I did once I did and I think this is the thing by the way that was really really difficult I used to come out in like hives you know, like physical reactions to going through what I had to go through. But the, the fastest way through hell is straight through it, right? So I 
persevered and came out the other side. And I cannot tell you, like, I don't wish that experience on anybody, but the relief, the enlightenment and, you know, how light my shoulders feel now. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And I, I so align with that because I've had similar experiences and I can talk through a lot of different things that have happened to me very easily. And it's the thing that you can't talk about that seems really mm. small that that's something. And I know t- from my experience too, like, oh, that's what I have to unpack. That's right. That little thing that doesn't, that seems so insignificant, mm-hmm. but that's where the next layer is. And and I suppose that comes down to what I now understand is my, you know, when we talk about leadership and, entre- you know, like what is it that how do you define your leadership? And I tell everybody, listen, you can read as many books, you can read, listen to as many thought leaders and all that. And, and that is fantastic, by the way, do that. But if you really want to unlock your own potential, you need to get rid of that mess that's in front of you, which is in your head. Mm-hmm. You are you are going yeah. to sabotage yourself unless you do your hard work, and I, that's that's across the board, men, women, everybody, Absolutely. everybody. You have yeah. to understand all your triggers and and get to correct where you're not having emotional reactions to things, and not that you don't have emotions, but that you're not being triggered, so that you can yes. just for me be in a place of kind of neutrality. Well, I, look, there are certain things that you may be triggered for the rest of your life, right? So I I think, and I want to, one of the things I had to learn was like, there's some things that may never heal exactly the way you expect them to, but it's the, it's the art of Kintsugu, right? Some things are more beautiful and more stronger because they have been broken. Right. Right. I love that. And I agree completely. Things definitely don't heal the way you would like them to sometimes, but they are healed. Um, Yes. And that's, I think, I think that's really important to be aware of too. I love that you're saying that. So I want to shift gears a little bit too, and get into, at what point did you decide to start your business and, and what did that look like? And, um, and really like dive into how Sea Monster has um, evolved. So I am a co-founder and we before Sea Monster, there was Custodian, which was a penetration testing company. We're professional hackers. Throughout all of that, I'm not the technical hacker, by the way. Throughout all of that, what I provided was all the negotiations, all of the strategy, all of the business sense, all of the acumen that I had, you know, learned at uni and all that sort of stuff. And every life experience to date made me a very, very good at that part. Yep. So not our first startup. And then of course, one of our clients then asked for a software solution to help them protect. And that's what made us enter and pivot from attacking people to defending people when it comes to cybersecurity. Now throughout that, then you say, now I'm stepping into the world of cybersecurity. So IT is difficult. It's a very male-led dominated area. Cybersecurity, even more so, right? So how did I step into that? Not easy, that's for sure. I, for a very long time, I pushed my co-founder who's male into the front and then puppeted behind him, mm-hmm. told him what to say, how to negotiate, what to do, and puppeted behind him until I felt the world was ready and I was ready. More me, more me. let's go back to it. It's all me. It's all in my head, right? So right. once I was ready, I actually stepped out from the shadows and said, actually, ta-da, <laughs> 
let's pull that curtain behind, you know, and then see who the puppet master was. It was me. So, and by the way, a lot of people didn't believe it. So I also knew I had a to work and earn my stripes to be in the industry. So I kept my head down and worked and worked and worked to put the runs on the board, as they say, right, to then come out and say, okay, yeah, no, see, yes, me, me, visibly me, me all the way, me, right, because as a woman you don't have the privilege of walking into a room and everyone trusting that you're a professional in what you do. You have to prove it. Right, right, over and over and over again. Yeah, and, and so that's one of the things I say to people is like if I'm walking into the room and telling you I'm a founder and startup, or, you know, a cybersecurity startup, you can automatically assume, because I, I flip the script all the time now, you can automatically assume that I'm better than anybody else who's done it because I had to be. I'm right. held to a higher standard. Right. And and how do you overcome that? And not from outward, um, like having to navigate everybody else, but the mindset uh, for yourself in, um, I'm not asking. I practiced a lot. I I remember one of the things I did, I practiced, I practiced my leadership behind a veil, right? Um, that that's one of the things I did. And I know that, look, there's a lot of women and I understand this. A lot of our, our cohort is breaking glass ceilings from the bottom up. My strategy and this might be an ADHD thing, was like I didn't have the patience for that. I wanted to go straight to the top and then break it with a big rock <laughs> from the top down, right? Yeah. So I did not, I the, for me, the, the destination was more important, not how I got there, right? So I did not climb the ladder in the traditional way, right? Um, I literally used all advantages to me and and I'm and I'm telling you how I used the male counterpart to speak on my behalf right I did that tactically right and I'm sure I'm not the only one I just don't think that we're speaking enough about this that there are people women negotiating behind men so advising and negotiating in order for them to go in and to do it because we all know that they're going to hear it much easier from the straight white guy who walks in the door right so um it, but eventually, so for us, in, eventually what happened is Seamonster grew and grew and grew to the point where uh, my co-founder said, I can't actually do this anymore because I need to do one part. You need to step in. And that's what happened. And so I said, oh, I need to step in. And then the <laughs> so you're asking, like, how did I see you know, the fear? And there was, there really was fear because it's so comfortable. Found my little rut, you know, doing it from behind the scenes. And how do I move from that rut to center stage? And I think the the work I had done or everything I'd mentioned up until now is what helped me do that. I realized that there was I was the one holding myself back now mm-hmm. and um and worked through that. And again, it's a muscle like it's like any other muscle. If you've never used it, you're always going to feel weak. You're always going to feel like we call that imposter syndrome. But for me, imposter syndrome is just a muscle is so underused. Or, you know, like, you know, like it's if you're feeling like you don't belong here, or I'm going to be found out, I'm going to be found. That's just not enough practice, not enough, you know, not enough days in the sun, right? right. To actually get the, because once you do, once you actually think, oh, I've been here for long enough, I turn up every day, I do the work every day. Now, all of a sudden, that muscle is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And that voice, which we call, you know, the the one where we're, um, what, what was the word I just used? Um, uh, in, imposter syndrome, yeah. you know, starts to fade away because yeah. 
you're turning up. And by the way, if you're feeling imposter syndrome, turn up and do the work anyway. It's it, Imposter syndrome is just you can synonymize that with fear. We feel it and we do it anyway. Exactly. And the more you do it a little bit every day. That's right. It's like the better a you- gym, right? Like you start with 10 pounds or whatever. And the next thing you know, you're doing 30 pounds or 100 pounds and- or whatever the progression is. Correct. Uh- and I read something somewhere and I actually have it written up now in on my bathroom wall. And the fear you don't face becomes your boundary. Right. Right. Do you want that to be where you stop? Is that your boundary? Ask yourself that question. Yeah. Right. Right. And to me, it was like, I was way too driven to say, hell no, 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 no. I, mm, there's more in the tank here. Right. So I didn't mean by the way, the fear stopped. I've never not felt fear. I just did it anyway. Right. So if you're waiting to stop feeling afraid or feeling like an imposter, that's not going to go away. The difference is the women who are doing, and I've asked this for many, many successful women, what do you do with this? And they say, I just, I still, I feel it. Of course I feel it, mm-hmm. but I turn up anyway and keep doing it. Yeah. And eventually, at least for me, one, there's layers of the of the fear. So you get comfortable doing whatever it is you're doing and feeling really uncomfortable with that, but it gets easier. And then there's another level of, the same thing and you have to mm. continue moving forward until it I think gets smaller but there's different aspects of it as well right well I joke with my girlfriends and say have the confidence of a mediocre white man right <laughs> <laughs> my god that's awesome yes right yeah because they don't ever have to prove themselves as fat you know what the high what internally in your head you're holding yourself up to have that right. confidence. Right. Right. Well, and realize that the game is being played by mediocre people, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think for those of us who are striving for extreme excellence, if we just strive for mediocrity and keep going, we'll get to the excessive excellence as well. Mm. Right? Like just keep going and do it. Keep going. Yes, exactly right. So, I think that like I said, there's any minority knows that they have to be pushed to Anyone who's not on the top of the pecking order in the patriarchy, let's say, knows that they have to work twice as hard to be considered half as much. This is a known documented fact. Right. Right? So don't allow the fact that you're not good enough, that's what you're saying ostensibly, to stop you. Keep at it. Look, and I say this to every time I watch a bad movie or read a bad book or whatever, I think that was so terrible. I don't think, oh, my God, how does, I think, wow, that's super inspiring because if this person can get published, there is room for me too. (laughs) Exactly. Right? Or if this person can make a movie out of this crappy story, my goodness, wow. Then I can do something as well. There's space for me. Absolutely. There's space for me. So flip the script. And I think that's the other thing that I suppose successful people do is they continually flip the script. They, the negative, you know, they turn the negative into the positive. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as you're moving through the fear and the imposter syndrome, also it, there's a space to really expand what your vision is and what's possible for you. I think a lot of people are playing way too small. If I can just get Oh, definitely. It. Well, I think that, I mean, I, and I think the other thing is, is that you've got to be really honest about what it is, what it is you want. Ask yourself the difficult questions. What is it you want? And what does that look like? How do you think you're going to get there? Do you really want it or do you want someone to give it to you? 
Right. Oh my God. They're, they're very, very pertinent questions, right? That's going to allow you to formulate the pathway to get there. If you're waiting for someone to give it to you, good luck. Right. You have to take it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm curious too, because you've mentioned the ADHD, how has that played into you growing as a business owner, female founder, and how do you mm. use it to your advantage? I think um, for starters, after diagnosis, my life made a lot more sense, right? Uh, that was, and I know I'm not the only one late in life being diagnosed with this. Uh, and I think that's because for starters, I know there's a lot of people, everyone's got it. Yeah, that's right. Because ADHD up until now was young boys who couldn't sit still. And they were the only ones who got it, right? We've right. we've always lived in medical history where women were underserved and, you know, di- misdiagnosed or non-diagnosed. So that's not an argument that we should be having for starters. So how's it served me? The ability, what it is, is ADHD is a, is a modern phenomenon for people who cannot, who are not soldiers or workers, right? So yeah. our brain, our mind thinks out, you know, it's, I know it's a dopamine deficiency, but what it allows us to do is to think think constantly and fast and solution, you know, we're always, so in the old days, we may have been the tribal warriors to be able to think first, think, uh, fast on our feet, to be able to protect, to be able to do all of this stuff, to be able to problem solve, to be all of this, you know, all neurodiversities, by the way, bring skill sets to it that we see as a problem now because we're trying to fit them into the society we live in mm-hmm. rather than enhancing and ingratiating them to allow them to thrive because that's exactly what we need. If we understood that, we'd be unlocking that potential as well. So right. for me, you will find that most CEOs, by the way, Especially yeah. in tech. In tech, there's a lot of neurodiversity, period. Most CEOs, I can't think of what, like you think of the most famous ones. They've all, they're all, we're all, <laughs> we're all part of the same group because the skill set also brings with it the ability to handle all fronts, all fires, all at once. Whereas neurotypical people will be overwhelmed, we thrive. So it's very, very good for us. Also, don't forget, by the time you become a CEO, you have a support group under you. So they will follow through on everything, that every decision and everything you need to do. So all of the legwork that type, like trips me up, I'm now offloading off to people to say, hey, you need to do this, you need to do that. And then I, and I'm just the thinker, right? I just problem solve, problem solve, and then move on and move on and strategize. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with you. My, I, my older son, I never had him tested, but has definitely has ADD or ADHD and, and high IQ. And my younger guy has auditory visual and sensory processing disorders and runs a little bit on Asperger's. And I never categorized either one of them because there were incredible skill sets that both of them brought that were very different mm-hmm. than the average human. And it's allowed them to find the things that they want to do in life and make those decisions based on, you know, I'm great at this and my, I'm less good at this. And this is how I can create the thing that I want to do. Well, every disruptor in history from Leonardo to uh, Einstein to everybody, right? Even Elon, right? But he's a different kettle of fish, but even him, every disruptor have all, I will argue, have all been neurodiverse. Oh, I would agree. Do you know what I'm saying? Like change yeah. comes from neurodiverse people. 
period, yeah. right? So we're the ones who then introduce something that's unthought of and, you know, and we follow a passion through because we hyper-focus and the hyper-focus allows us to go dive deep into these subjects, um, the skills that we bring. So this is a known fact and yet we are still treating neurodiversity. I mean, we're we're labelling it, we're, you know, categorising it. We're creating we're more do- identity around it that yes. isn't necessary yes, yes, yes. that then creates boundaries and limitations that doesn't, I, for me at least, doesn't take the attributes and the great parts of any of the Correct. different pieces or different ways or expressions and really celebrates that. Like- there was um, a, an autistic woman who studied um, I think, uh, temp- I've, I've forgotten oh, Temple name. Grandin. Correct. Yeah. Right. And the breakthroughs she's done, right? Right. Right. And, and, and no one else would have done it. Right. Yeah. She was so unique. And so I'm so glad you remembered her name. But yeah. my point is, is that because she, we know, like I said, I point that out because we know she's diagnosed and we know she did break- breakthroughs. But what I'm saying is historically, I will argue that every other one would have been diagnosed in today's society as well. Right. Yeah. So, um, and I think that we need to uh, look. I, and I, the reason why I have ADHD on my Twitter is not necessarily because I, I, I it's not my, it's not my personality, right? I don't want to make a diagnosis my personality, but I do it because uh, I have children with um, neurodiversity too, and I don't ever want them to be living in shame because Mm of it. So in order to do that, again, this goes back to the empire I'm building, right? In order to do that, I am a role model first and foremost for them. In order to do that, I will always be the role model of neurodiversity as well. So this is what it can also look like. We need more of it. And that's why I put it there publicly because uh, for that, for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm so glad that you are, and that's in different ways, similar to how I've raised my kids. And, and how I've wanted to role model for them as well, because I definitely have always done things out of the box. I've reinvented myself more times than I can count. And it's fitting into what is important for me and, and being able to leave that legacy, as we were talking about at the beginning of the episode here, that I want them to know that they can do whatever they want. Hmm. And that there is no boundary for them or for anybody that they can't break through if they want it, I'm going to say badly enough, but if as long as they're willing to do the work and move past the fear, as we talked about. Yeah. I am on that topic. I am now reassessing my expectations of my children as well because, because I'm so success-driven, I have to change that scope and say that because I am doesn't mean they have to be. Right. The, the one and... What I told them is that who they are is enough. Yeah. Just who they are is enough because the world needs all sorts. We need artists. We need poets. We need muses. We need, you know, doctors. We need them all, right? So if you want to be, and I mean this in all sincerity, if all you want to do is have your own family, that's enough. Honestly, that's enough, right? right? Uh, And there is honour in that. I think I, I, I love the fact that, like I, I come from the philosophy of every work has honor in it, right? Mm-hmm. There is and and this hierarchy and pecking order, and this is come, comes back to what how I rank success. Like I don't rank it by how much money is being made because there are some things that can't be quantified, 
right, um, and should not be quantified. And even if we do the most successful, why is the most successful people the most miserable as well? When we why say successful, the most the wealthiest people also the most miserable, empty, lonely, whatever, as right. well, right? It's because it, it's not fulfilling, right? You're going to fulfill it with other stuff. But you're always going to be ch- there's no there's a chase then right so you're chasing the next adrenaline the next this the next you know what is it that's missing in my life that's that's why when um, you know the CEO of Amazon got divorced what was his name oh Jeff um, Bezos right he did the ultimate so you know he got divorced and what did he do he went up in the space right like that has to be the most mid you know looking for fulfillment need something in my life act yeah. ever out there. Right. Right. Well, and I mean, my understanding, he's, he spent his entire life building Amazon and I have to presume excluding a lot of fulfillment and a lot of other areas. And that's right. Uh, The same with Bill Gates, you know, his marriage collapsed as well. And so I think that that's what I, and this is where, all right. So this is where I make harsh judgments that if you think you're a leader because you're great at your business, that doesn't make you a leader at all. Because if you truly are a good leader, that would permeate through all of your life. Right. Right. All aspects, all relationships of your life. Yeah. I completely agree with you 100% and very well said. And I think that's where we need to take business is not sacrificing everything else in our existence to create profitable, sustainable businesses that do help people. It's being fulfilled in all areas of your life. Right. And on that, if you're asking your staff to work eight hours a day, 10 hours, whatever, how many hours a day with you to help you grow your business, you're asking them to take eight hours away from their family, away from what, because at the end of the day, it won't uh, go back to the eulogy analogy, right? It, it, they won't be talking about, and his boss was great or her boss. Do you know what I mean? It's That's not the highlights of that person's life. So the expectation of the, you know, we really have the tail wagging the dog here. The expectation of what we want out of our workers is wrong, right? So we need to have that balance and to realize that we want to encourage healthy health uh, work-life balances. We want our bosses to role model healthy work-life balances. And I will argue that once you actually allow that, properly allow that, not lip service allow that, productivity goes up because people don't work for money. Uh, this is a known fact. You cannot pay someone enough to stay in a job in where they're treated poorly. They will move on right? So it's financial um, reward is not the key, even though people people think money is it. It's not. People will stay where they're feeling valued, where they're feeling like part of the team, where where they know they're making a difference. You're asking them to spend a lot of their life helping you build your empire, you build your job. And in my opinion, leadership doesn't come from just telling people what to do or making decisions. Leadership Proper leadership comes from caring about the people you lead. Yes, absolutely. Because if you're not fostering those relationships and building the team and the unity, people aren't, as you said, aren't going to be as productive. And right. they will leave because they don't they don't care. They don't not only do they not care about creating the empire with you, but they're missing a piece that they can find somewhere else. And that's the thing is that we all have to understand that fulfillment comes in more ways than financial. And that's what we need to look at in this society, in this current working society. That's it. You can see the disdain between CEOs and employees all over, everywhere. 
Everyone wants to be a founder CEO. Everybody wants to be one. Nobody likes one, right? Nobody likes their boss. And yet that's the discussion no one's talking enough about. Mm. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to leave it right there. (laughs) Like we've just covered, I'm going to say, a lot of different topics in a really short period of time that I think are very profound. And I want everybody that's listening to really allow what you've shared to sink in about the fear about imposter syndrome, about what success really is, like and and what that means for you and how you're leading, the how you're treating people. Like thank you, because this has been, I think, one of the best um episodes we've had in a while to just cover all of these really important topics. I want to thank you for having me on. It's been yeah. a real pleasure. Yeah. Share with everybody um, where people can reach out to you or connect with you. LinkedIn as Desrock. Okay. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's Distraction with a D-E-Z traction. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's my hope that you find at least one nugget of value in each episode of Women Who Build Empires. And if that's true, please follow and share Women Who Build Empires with your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcast. Your support is what will help this podcast be found by more women just like you.